Hello, everyone, and welcome to Diversity Matters, where we explore all things diversity, equity, and inclusion related. I'm your host, Oscar Holmes IV, and I'm so excited to welcome our wonderful season two premiere guest, Dr. Laura Wong, to the guest chair today as we talk about her amazing new book, Edge, Turning Adversity into Advantage, and unfortunately, the horrific rise of anti-Asian bias and violence. Laura is an award-winning professor at Harvard Business School, as well as the creator and co-founder of Project Amplify, an initiative dedicated to addressing inequality and disadvantage through personal empowerment. You can find her work highlighted all over in respected business outlets, like the Financial Times, the Wall Street Journal, Forbes, and many, many more. Dr. Laura Wong, welcome to Diversity Matters. Thanks so much. Yeah, and thank you for that amazing introduction. We'll be back after a quick word from our sponsors. Many graduate business programs are currently being converted to an online learning environment. However, the Rutgers Online MBA was built for online. As 2021 kicks off, the Rutgers School of Business Camden has made the application process easier by waiving the GMAT requirement and assigning you a personal enrollment coach. To learn more about New Jersey's number two ranked online MBA, tap on the graphic appearing on your device or visit go.rutgers.edu online and learn how you can specialize the Rutgers Online MBA for your career. So Diversity Matters is back with our season two opener. And of course, a lot has happened in the world in our off season. Last year brought us a new virus in the form of the deadly COVID-19 pandemic, but also catapulted the virus of racism back to the forefront with the murders of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, and Ahmaud Arbery. Unfortunately, our former president not only mishandled the national response to the pandemic, but purposely referred to it as the China virus, which led to the precipitous rise in anti-Asian bias and violence. So I knew I not only had to give space to talk about this issue, I felt it needed to be my season two opener because of how important this is. So when I was thinking about people I could invite, Laura, you immediately came to my mind because I love how outspoken you are about this important topic. And I'm also just a huge fan of your scholarship and just think you're an amazing person. So this is how I wanna do this. I want us to set the scene first so that our listeners can get to know more about you as an individual person, your amazing book, Edge, and the wonderful work that you do. And then we'll end with talking about the violence against the AAPI community, because that deserves to be the last word. So Laura, let's get started. You've published your research in nearly all of our top tier outlets. Why did you decide to write your book, Edge, Turning Adversity into Advantage? Can you tell us a little bit about the journey from the idea phase to the actual published book? What was all of that like? Yeah, I mean, I had um, been doing research on disadvantage and disparities and people who are underestimated in the workplace and entrepreneurship. I had been doing all this research for the last decade or so and finding that a lot of the times these disparities and disadvantages were based on things like 
subtle signals and cues and perceptions and stereotypes. And I was presenting a lot of this work. And every time I'd present this work, I would have people come up to me afterwards and they would say to me, you know, this is all really depressing. This is like, this is depressing. What do we kind of do about it? Are there ways that we can level the playing field? Are there ways that we can prevent against some of these perceptions and these stereotypes? And The thing is, what I found was that so much of the research that's out there, so many of the solutions for how we level the playing field are very much at the system level or at the structural level. And what I mean by that is it's things like, well, let's try and have more equitable hiring practices, right? Have checklists to help us hire or even algorithms to help us do hiring. Or let's try and think about the pipeline and the leaky pipeline and try and figure out how we can have more women and people of color in positions of power or as mentors in organizations. And all of these things are steps in the right direction, right? All of these things are things that we should be doing. But what I also found in my research was that these sort of solutions were actually leaving people within organizations also feeling really frustrated. Because it's as if we're saying to people, just wait, right? We know that there's a myth of meritocracy and we're trying to fix it at the organizational or the systemic or system level, but just wait, wait until we have more gender balance or wait until we have more balance in terms of who's in positions of power and who are mentors and, and having people of color and, and sort of, it was this aspect of you know, we know that we're in an imperfect system, but just wait until we try and fix things from the outside in. And so for the last couple of years, what I've been trying to study is how can we not only be fixing things from the outside in, but also helping individuals from the inside out to be fixing things as well. Because the thing is, we've been talking about these outside in solutions for a really long time, right? We we know that there is this myth of meritocracy. We know that there's this imperfect system and yet things for decades have not changed or if they've changed, they've changed far too slowly or maybe they've changed but created unintended consequences. And so this book is really, I wanted to write it so that it was how we could sort of empower people from the inside out as well as the outside. Great. So we know one of the big challenges that a lot of people have in workplaces is dealing with stereotypes. And so can you talk a little bit about how, if you are a person who your identity group has negative stereotypes, how you can kind of use that stereotype to your advantage? Yeah. So one of the first studies that I I ran when I became a researcher, I was looking at the role of accent or how people communicate. Because, you know, growing up as as a child, I had seen both my mother and my father, they're both immigrants. I had seen them getting turned down for promotion after promotion after promotion. And during one of these promotions, my father, the person who became his boss, the person who he lost the promotion to, that my father was actually doing that person's job for them because everyone in the organization sort of knew that that person wasn't qualified to be doing this job. And so I remember asking my father, you know, why is it that you think that you didn't get that promotion? And I remember my father saying like, oh, I don't know, it's probably because of my accent or the way I communicate or something like that. And so I had always remembered this. And years and years later, when I became a a researcher, I, I wanted to study, like, could something like someone's accent, a subtle signal around how someone communicates or their accent be enough to lead to these disparities in terms of who gets promoted? 
And I found that yes, time and time again, based on how you communicate or your accent, having a non-standard accent, that you are less likely to get a raise, less likely to get promoted, less likely to get funding for your venture, less likely to get hired into a top management team position or an executive level position. So wanted to figure out like what was sort of going on and how can we really redirect this and how can we turn this around? What I first started looking at was this lay perception that lots of people have, including my father, that it was about, you know, that he wasn't able to communicate as well because he had this accent. So I ran studies where, for example, I would take a bunch of individuals with accents, a bunch of individuals without accents, and randomize the order in which they presented to, say, a panel of investors. So they would be entrepreneurs, some with accents, some without, and they'd be presenting to investors or venture capitalists. And I didn't ask the investors, would you invest in, who would you invest in? Because I already knew from prior studies that they were less likely to invest in those with accents. Instead, I asked them to write down a couple of things that they remember from this person's pitch or a couple of things that they learned or they thought was interesting. And what I found was that these investors were just as likely to have learned things and remembered things and think things were interesting from those who had accents, sometimes even more than those who didn't have accents. So it wasn't about communication at all. Instead, I found that these investors were more likely, they were rating these individuals much lower in terms of things like how creative or out of the box thinking were they? Or how much interpersonal influence do they have? Or how good of a team player are they? And so what I then did was I would take accented individuals and I would tell them before they were going to interview for a job, for example, I would say to them, the perception they have about you is that you are not as creative and out of the box thinking, or that you're not as good of a team player, or you're not as interpersonally skilled. And they would go into these interviews and I would hear them saying these astounding things. I would hear them saying things like, let me tell you about a time when I fought for resources for my team, or let me tell you about a time when I was trying to close this deal and I did it in this really innovative way. And I didn't stop until I closed that deal. And what I found was that not only were they rated higher in terms of things like interpersonal influence or thinking outside the box, being creative, being a team player, they were also much more likely to get the job or the raise or the promotion or the funding. But even more so, what I found was that they were significantly more likely to get rated higher in terms of their communication skills. And they were significantly rated lower in terms of how strong of an accent do they have. So these were things that they didn't even talk about. They didn't talk about their communication skills or their accent, but because they were addressing these perceptions, these underlying perceptions and stereotypes that people had about them, that they were able to flip it in their favor and redirect people to the sort of advantages that they brought and really change these outcomes and really impact these outcomes in a positive way. That's amazing. So just to break it down for our listeners, the research that you conducted, it was so important because you actually found out what was embedded in the stereotypes. And then when you were able to inform the people that these, you know, the investors have this perception from the start, they were able to proactively answer those questions of concern so that the investors in the end can bypass the unconscious bias or implicit bias they may have to focus on 
the thing that's really important, which is actually the content of which people are saying. That's right. That once we were able to understand these underlying perceptions that were driving these stereotypes, that they were able to guide and redirect it and really flip it in their favor. And this goes back to what I was sort of saying before, that a lot of times the structures are not set up that even if we're trying to do more equitable hiring or trying to be more fair, that there are all of these underlying and implicit perceptions that are being made that we can't do anything about. But once we understand that, we can empower ourselves to really flip this in our favor. Right. So, and it almost sounds like because the person had a non-standard accent, that some of the investors may be more attuned to what they're saying than people who have non-standard accents. So people who have a non-standard accent is only when they can actually speak to the underlying perceptions and biases that people may have, that the investors can then be more attuned to what they have to say. Absolutely. Yeah. That's the piece of it. That's really taking that adversity and turning it into an advantage. And you're doing so in a really authentic real way. Like you're not going in there and saying like, I know it's because I have an accent that you think X, Y, and Z, right? Because then the first reaction you're going to get is like, oh no, I would never think that even if that's exactly what they're thinking, right? You're not going in there and saying, oh, I know it's because I'm a woman that you think this, Right. right? Because, but when you do it in this way, you are addressing those underlying perceptions and you're much more authentic and you're able to do it in a way where you really are giving examples of times when you had interpersonal influence or when you were thinking outside the box or that you were creative or you were a team player. And so it's not one of those things where you're managing impressions or being strategic. You are just guiding them to how you truly provide value and how you enrich and things that they were overlooking because of those implicit perceptions. That's amazing. So as I am just interpreting your research and applying to myself, because I'm from the South, from Virginia, and live in New Jersey now, so the Northeast. And, you know, we know from the research that if you have a Southern accent, people see you as less competent. So for me, applying your research would be not necessarily trying to change my accent, right? But to speak to competence, to my competence. So if I can explain things that I've done that show my competence, that could be a way to get an edge in that situation. That's right. And you're already, right, because of the natural like charisma that you might have or the natural sort of other ways that now on top of that, you've got the competence that is really even giving you that extra advantage or that edge over those who maybe don't have the sort of charisma, but just show the competence, right? So all of these things really go together to be able to help you turn adversity into an advantage. Excellent. So I want to get back to your family. You mentioned in your book, and and I was really moved by your level of vulnerability and transparency in your book about the adversity that your parents experienced, your family experienced. Your parents immigrated to the United States from Taiwan, right? Mm -hmm. So could you talk a little bit about what was their journey like and the inspiration seeing them overcome adversity and how that influenced your life and some of the adversity that you experienced in your life. You know, a lot of people pat themselves on the back, said they just did an awesome job, particularly someone with your level of career success. But you talked about being a quote unquote non-standard candidate, you know, someone that people perhaps wouldn't have predicted that you'd be where you are today. So I was just fascinated by that level of vulnerability and transparency. (laughs) Thank you. I mean, I didn't mean to be that, but I actually didn't (laughs) intend to be that, that vulnerable. When I was writing the book, I was just trying to get 
all my thoughts down on paper. It was only after the the editing process that I was for the first time reading it from the perspective of a reader rather than a writer and thinking, oh my gosh, there's all of these stories in there that are so personal that people I know are actually going to be reading this. But yeah, I talk a lot about you know everything from growing up as the child of immigrants where money was always an issue because we didn't have a lot of it. And at some point, my mother became a single mother. And, and what did that mean? And you know, having to work three different jobs when I was in college to pay for, to help pay for books and, and room and board and tuition, part of the tuition and all of those sort of things. And what that meant for me also, you know, things around like just not understanding, right? I remember that I started college and I was an electrical engineer. And I remember the professor talking about how, you know, everyone has taken apart a computer before in their lives. And, and I had never even really had a computer. So there was like just references to things that I had never experienced. But yeah, I just think like all of these things, I often talk about how life rhymes, right? You have these experiences in your life that, that sort of maybe are completely different context, different people, but yet that feeling, you still have that same feeling that's this constant thread where you feel like your life kind of rhymes. So I remember, you know, growing up when I was really young, my parents, it must have been like second or third grade or something. And my teacher came to me and said, there's something that has gone really drastically wrong. And I said, oh my gosh, what happened? And she said, well, you know, you, your test scores came back because we had to take these annual, they're called the Iowa's, the Iowa exams. And I don't know if you remember that, but I remember. She, yeah, your, your Iowa test came back and you scored so high that we were supposed to put you in the gifted and talented program. But we've never had anyone test into the gifted and talented program. It's always been from teacher recommendations. So right. something must be wrong. And so they were like, we're going to give you another series of tests. So then they gave me another set of tests. And again, I guess I did a, like, you know, well enough to, to be placed into gifted and talented. And they're like, there's just, this is wrong. We're going to bring your parents in. So they brought my parents in and they wanted my parents to sign something saying that like, and they didn't understand. They didn't know what was sort of happening. They didn't know what was going on. Luckily, they didn't actually sign anything, but Long story short, the principal ultimately was like, you know what? So we legally have to put you in the gifted and talented program, but we're only going to put you in for math mm. because there's no way that you speak English. And so your English, and it was the first time that they had somebody who was like pulled in and out of class just for like portions of the gifted and talented program. And then this was sort of something I experienced when I was really, really young. But then I remember being in college and there was a university writing class that everyone had to take. Every All college freshmen had to take this class. And it was supposed to teach you around like writing and all these things. And I remember getting that first writing assignment back. We were supposed to write something every week. And I get it back and there was like a big F at the top of this writing assignment. And I was like, what happened? And so I sort of asked the, the professor, I was like, well, how can you help me understand? Like, and he's like, oh, it's fine because you don't really speak English. And that's what the point of this course is. The point of this course is to teach you how to sort of write. And 
I kind of had that same feeling that I had when I was younger and I didn't quite know what that feeling was. I didn't quite understand yet, but it was this, it just didn't quite sit well. There was some feeling that didn't sit well and it was the same thing. And I, throughout my life, I've kind of had this feeling where, where I'm being seen as less, you know, that I'm being seen as somewhat foreign, that I don't really speak English well, that I, that I'm not who, I'm not that traditional candidate. And with that professor anyways, by that point I had learned a lot more. And so I, for my second essay, I ended up writing the whole essay about how I was so grateful for this university writing course that it was going to teach me how to write and it was going to teach me how to speak and that this course was going to change my life. And I ended up getting a B minus on it because I, I sort of talked about how like this course was like my salvation and it was going to teach me how to speak and write and all of these, these sort of things. But these are the types of kind of experiences that I talk about in my book and how do I navigate that and how do we navigate all of the, because I talk about how everyone has something right? Everyone has something and everyone has perceptions that are being bestowed upon them. How do we understand and really hone our ability to see these perceptions that others have about us so that we can guide and redirect them in our favor? So my listeners from this alone, you know exactly why I wanted to talk to Laura because her book is amazing. These stories are amazing. And, you know, unfortunately, so many people of color have similar stories like that. And, you know, when we tell them, people are like, no, there's no way that happened. You're lying. You're exaggerating. All of us are not lying. Like, these are stories that are blatantly racist stories, right, and experiences that we go through. And it, it's triggering. It's draining. But many more people need to hear our stories because these things happen to far too many people. So thank you for sharing your story. I want to talk about the four ways in which people can get an edge. But before I go there, I want to go back to one of the funniest stories in your book when you were meeting with Elon Musk. So tell <laughs> us about that moment. And, you know, how does one get a meeting with Elon Musk? How did you do it? Yeah. So at the time, I was actually doing research on the emergence of the private space industry. So I was doing research on like entrepreneurs who were trying to compete against like the Boeings and the NASA's and the, the big behemoths. And Elon had started a company called SpaceX, right? So lots of people have heard of SpaceX. And so this meeting was very, very serendipitous where a friend of mine was talking about the emergence of the private space industry, thought that I had some things that I could add. And so we showed up at his office to kind of talk about this. And, you know, the, the story that you're sort of referring to is was a little bit of this, you know, because we had prepared so hard. Right. So one of the parts of the book that I talk a lot about is how from a really young age, we're taught that hard work is the secret to success, right? Like you get, you take people who are super successful in life, like CEOs of companies, people who have gold medals, world record holders, and you ask them, like, how did you achieve your success? And inevitably, one of the things they'll mention is hard work, just keep working hard, keep working hard. And the thing about a lot of a lot of us, right, including people of color, including people who, you know, we we are constantly discounted. And so we're sometimes told, like, just work twice as hard for half the amount of benefits, right? Just put your head down, keep working hard. 
but it does leave us tired and drained. So I sort of tell this story around this piece around hard work, but also how we ultimately gained an edge. But so we had put in tremendous work before meeting with Elon. We had researched everything about him. Like we knew everything about SpaceX and Tesla and PayPal and all of his companies, any companies ever been involved in. We knew things about him, his sons, his six sons. So we knew things about his sons and his family and his education and all these things. So we had prepared tremendously hard and put in tons of hard work. We had even prepared a gift because I'm I'm Asian and we never show up at someone's house or our office with empty handed. So we had even prepared a small gift for him. And so we show up at his office and the first thing he says, he takes one look at me and he says, get out, like get out of my office. No, like very sternly, like, no, get out of my office. And I'm thinking to myself, oh my gosh, what is happening? I hadn't even opened my mouth at that point. So I don't know what I could have said. Like he really just looked at me and said, get out of my office. And so I was really nervous. And so I did kind of what I'm doing now. Like I sort of started laughing nervously because that's what I do when I get nervous. And so I'm laughing at Elon and he starts laughing back at me. And I have no idea why he did that, but you know, there's research on uncertainty. Like when people are feeling uncertain, they mimic the behaviors of others. So maybe, maybe that's why, but so now we're laughing at each other. And I realize in that moment that he's not actually looking at me, that he's looking at the gift that I'm carrying, which was an unwrapped gift. And I think, oh my gosh, he doesn't know who I am. Like, of course he doesn't know who I am. Why would he know who I am? But also he thinks I'm an entrepreneur. And this is my product prototype and that he thinks I'm an entrepreneur trying to pitch him and trying to get his money or resources or something. And so, you know, when we talked about those underlying perceptions, I was able to sort of get, oh, these are the perceptions he has about me. And so I sort of sputter out in my laughter, like, oh, you think I'm an entrepreneur? And he's like, aren't you? And then I was like, no. And you think I want your money? And he's like, don't you? And then I said, I somehow insulted him. I basically was like, you don't have any money. Like what? You have any money? Why would I want your money? And this is like one of the richest men in the world. And so I basically was like, no, I don't want your money. Why? You, you don't have any money. And he thought that was so hilarious that he's like laughing and then he for real this time. And he's like, please come into my office. And so we go into his office and we have the most amazing conversation where by the end of the conversation, he's offering all of the very things that he was so adamantly saying no to. Like, so he was saying things like, you know who else you should talk to? Like, let me introduce you to this person. And you know what else would be useful for you is like this and and this. And, and so I tell this story about how was I able to gain an edge over one of the richest, most powerful men in the world when the door was was closed on me. It was really closed on me. And, and a lot of times we have doors that are closed to us. And if we can crack that door open a little bit and get that opportunity, we really do have a chance to guide and redirect so that we can gain that advantage or that edge. That's an amazing story. So please, please pick this book. Again, if you want a, a meeting with an important person, you need to pick this book. <laughs> and Laura, tell us the four ways, right, that we can gain this edge. You know, you speak about enrich yeah. the right God effort. So explain to our listeners, you know, how you came up with those four ways and yeah, help us so out. Help us get this edge. For sure. Yeah. So the title of the book is Edge, but Edge actually stands for the components of this framework that I sort of developed through my research and through a lot of my work, where the E stands for enrich, the D stands for delight. 
the G stands for guide and the final E stands for effort, effort and hard work. So the first E is enrich, which is about, you know, how do we understand the ways in which we enrich and provide value? in any sort of circumstance that we're going to be in. So this is about our strengths and our weaknesses and our underestimated strengths, but even more so, it's about how do others see our strengths and our weaknesses and the ways in which we enrich and provide value, right? So this is getting at those, recognizing those underlying perceptions of who we are and how we provide value. And the D stands for delight, which is to say that often, doors are closed to us. People don't give us the opportunity to show how we enrich or provide value because we either don't look the right way or we don't speak the right way or we don't know the right people. Very similar, right? Elon had closed the door on me. But delight is the equivalent of cracking that door open a little bit. When we understand the unique ways in which we can delight our customers, our counterparts, people we're interacting with, that is the equivalent of being able to have them pause for a second and consider us in a slightly different way so that we then do have the opportunity to show them how we enrich and provide value. And again, that's what we were sort of able to do with Elon, where we caught him a little bit off guard and we had that momentary opportunity where that door was cracked open a little bit and we got a chance to then show how we enrich and provide value. The G stands for guide which is to say that even when we enrich and delight, we need to constantly be guiding the perceptions that others have about us, flipping them in our favor, flipping those stereotypes, understanding how they see us and redirecting and guiding so that we, you know, regardless of whether it's that they think we're an entrepreneur trying to pitch them or they think that we're not competent enough or they think that whatever the case might be, that we are, we are guiding those perceptions. And the final E, stands for effort, effort and hard work, which is sort of where we started from, right? This fact that we're often taught, even from a young age, that hard work will speak for itself, that if you put in that hard work, that you'll achieve those outcomes and the success. So we often put hard work first, right? We put in that hard work, work twice as hard for half the amount of benefits, but in this framework, hard work comes last. Because when you know how you enrich and delight and guide, that's when your effort and hard work actually work harder for you. That's when you get those tailwinds. Like, because why work twice as hard for half the amount of benefits? Why not work twice as hard for twice the amount of benefits or even three times the amount of benefits? And that's what you get when you truly understand how you enrich and delight and guide so that ultimately you can gain that edge, that unique edge for yourself in the workplace and in life. That's amazing. And, you know, I think when we think about communities of color, we have been edging for a long time, right? Mm -hmm. Even before the book was out, right? We, yep. we kind of inherently work through these steps. And, but I love that we now have something to go back to that's based on the scientific research, the literature to walk us through in a systematic way to help us in this journey. So I, I want to pivot now because, you know, edge is something that's really important for all of us, important for us to, to move forward. But this next topic is not about edge, right? Like we mm -hmm. shouldn't have to have an edge in this, in this sense, because we are people and we should just be respected for being people. So, you know, it's just been horrific 
to just think about the alarming increase in Asian American and Pacific Islander violence and bias. So, you know, many people have have spoken publicly about it, social media, yourself included. And again, out of full transparency, you know, that was a little a faux pas that was made on social media. So, Mm -hmm. you know, talk to us about that experience and also really talk to us about, you know, what is going on in these communities and what we need to do to call more attention to it. And ultimately, it's it's about the eradication of white supremacy, right? Mm -hmm. So I definitely don't want the full attention to be on the faux pas because, you know, we all make faux pas. But I do know that you you wanted to have opportunity to also address that as well. And the more important issue is really just about the anti-Asian violence. Yeah, I mean, I think there's so much that there's so much in just even your like your introduction of this that, you know, that I, I have done so much thinking around and there's been so much emotion around, I think. So I'll start with sort of like this phrase that I think about a lot, which is that hurt people hurt people. Right. And and I have been I think a lot of people have been feeling really hurt for a really long time. and myself included. I mean, these are topics that I've been studying for more than a decade around disadvantage and bias and disparities. And there's so much of it that is very depressing and sad. And we were talking about edge. And even when I was writing the book, I was feeling a little bit like, you know, why is the burden constantly on? Like, even though I I talked about how a lot of these solutions People feel frustrated because there's these outside in solutions, but there's also this part of it, which is like, why is the burden on the inside out piece of it, right? Why are we still talking about this decades and decades later? And there's, there's all of these pieces around like hurt people, hurt people. And yet we're still trying to find all of these strategies and these tactics and these ways to, to continue making progress. And, you know, you and I have known each other for a while, and I so appreciated the way that you reached out to me. And there was this faux pas, and I even love the way you say this in a very, like, gentlemanly way, right, where I was hurt and I was angry that there was all of this violence against Asians. And part of my anger was around, like, why is this happening? And how do we speak up about this? How do we speak up about this in a way that's actually going to make a difference? We've seen a lot of sort of virtue signaling in the past decade or and even more recently. And so I was sort of hurt and frustrated by that. And as a comparison point, right, the, the whole Black Lives Matters like movement has been so influential for me in terms of seeing how the organizing has has happened and and all these sort of things my intention so when i talk about sort of like the intent i truly my intention was in an admirable way like why why is it that like can we be facing all racism and all bias in a way that is is powerful in a way that but i as you very clearly pointed out to me both privately as well as you know i also hurt people and that's something that I I still think about that, like, I was a hurt person. And I thought a lot about like, why did I in what ways? And I think the thing that continues to to bother me is that I have spent so much of my life thinking about these these sort of issues, and the intent 
Like it's so easy for the intent to get misconstrued. And that is inherently part of the problem. The inherently part of the problem is that racism and bias happens because the intentions of those who are being racist or discriminatory, the intent of those who are trying to be allies, but don't typically or necessarily understand the deeper issues. There's so much nuance. And I will never be able to capture all of those nuances in 160 characters or in any sort of in any sort of way. But you know, the thing that I did appreciate is all of those who did reach out to me and recognizing that there's something that I I think that's so inherently powerful, especially around the increasing concerns that that we have about race in America, that there is so much deep solidarity. And we need to continue to remember the solidarity. If we finger point, the finger pointing will never go away because there's always going to be isolated instances. But there is deep solidarity, right? Like everything from, you know, Frederick Douglass, like advocating for Chinese and Japanese immigration, like this dates back to the 1800s, right? African-Americans protesting against the Vietnam War, right? Like this was decades and decades ago. Like, let's not forget that Asians supporting these movements, leaders and soldiers who together, like during the Philippine-American War, right? Black leaders, Asian leaders opposing U.S. colonization together, right? Even sort of things like joint activism around like detention. Malcolm X had like all of these bonds with really powerful figures in the Asian and Asian American community. There's just so many examples like that I have that I have been studying through the years. Grace Lee Boggs, right? Hundreds, you know, in her long life of fighting for justice and civil rights, she was married to a deeply respected Black leader, James Boggs. So there's all of these like examples of coordinated action. And I think that was sort of my intent. It was like, how do we coordinate this action where we are on the same team, where we are all on the same team against racism, and we're all on the same team against disadvantage, disparities, all of these things. And that nuance is just so hard to express. I can even tell now, like I'm tripping over my words and the nuances are not oh, sort yeah. of getting out there. But but I think it's like conversations like this one. And right. it's the it's the work that you do. It's like podcasts like this that that are so powerful that I hope that we continue to to think about this. Because again, it's so easy to sort of point fingers and say, like, in this case, it was like this person did something to this person, or in this case, it was this person that did this person. And that doesn't actually help. That actually doesn't, in fact, that creates deeper factions. I also think in particular around like the Asian, Asian American violence right now, the violence against Asians, especially the elderly, especially because of all that's going on. It's hard. It's hard because I have to be quite honest. I feel like I've always been pretty outspoken in terms of my thoughts, but I do feel like my voice, I can't have the same voice, but something that I've also remembered is that anytime you're fighting, right? If if you think as an example, like you're fighting a war, right? There's, there's going to be some people who are on the front lines who are on the front lines, but you still need the people who are the medics, the meteorologists, like all of these sort of people. And and so not everyone is going to be willing to be on the front line or have the power to or have the means to. And so we need to also be able to 
coalesce in that way as well. Yeah, I, I think that was a beautiful explanation. And whenever I do trainings or do lessons in diversity, equity, inclusion, I always start with some of the cultural footballs that I make. And as a person who, like you, you know, we researched this topic for decades now, there's no destination to get to. Like we are all, as Michelle Obama said, we're all becoming, right? Mm-hmm. Like we're never going to get there where we've arrived and bias free or make, have no blind spots, make no cultural faux pas. So that's why it's important to do the work up front. Because when you get to know people and you know their work, when cultural football happens, you know, you can say, I know this person, this is a teachable moment, right? Or something. And, yeah. and it's not like, oh my God, I can't believe this happened. It's only in the cases where people don't do their work, right? Where you have some outcomes like that, or it's expected for someone to react in that way. So that's why I was perfectly comfortable in reaching out to you privately, right? Because I know the work you do. I know you as a person. So I saw myself in you in that moment, right? Yeah. And it was able to empathize. And what's so powerful about having those conversations, like being able to have someone like you, who I've known, who reaches out to me, is that it also encourages you to think deeper, right? More than just a, like, that's not what I meant kind of thing. It's like, wow, this person that I really respect. And it causes you to see it more than just the surface level. Like, that's not what I meant. Like, here's the apology. It's actually like, why did I write this? What is the hurt? What is the hurt? What is the hurting? What is like all of those deeper sort of things that allow, and that's how progress actually ultimately gets made. But it is hard because on a medium, like there's no apology. What I realized, what I learned is like, there's no perfect apology because when there is hurt, you can try it. There's still going to be scar tissue, right? You can try it. And so how do you actually, like you said, how do you continue becoming? How do you continue along this journey? And there's a couple of folks like yourself that reached out that I'll be forever grateful to for that really, it means a lot. No, I'm really grateful for you. And, you know, I just want to talk about, have you felt any any personal instances of bias recently because of this? I just want you to talk about that to share your personal experiences first, but then I also want to have a moment because when the Atlanta shootings happened, I'm sure you reacted probably worse than I did, but I was just awful. It was awful to me. Mm-hmm. I was like sick. I was angry. I was just all of those things. And again, I I imagine you were probably all of those things and even more. So, you know, I just want to give you space to talk about your own personal experiences, but also any moment to memorialize the moment of the tragedy that happened with the Atlanta shootings. And also, you know, if you have any organizations that you want to raise the awareness for people so that they can become more involved so that we could come together collectively to just end this violence. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. That's actually really, it's so powerful to hear you express it in those ways as well. I mean, it's been incredibly hard. It's been hard because I personally, I have had comments, you know, I've had people who have made comments towards me, both overtly as well as sort of implicitly. We see a lot of, I have concern for family members. I have family members that live on the West Coast in San Francisco, where a lot of this, like a lot of the early 
sort of things were, were happening. My mother is elderly, right? So, and it's a horrible feeling to have to say to your mother or to your aunts and uncles or people that you really love, like, be careful, like, make sure that you're going out with others, that you're not alone, that you're not, it's a horrible thing to have to. So all of those things really emotionally weigh on you as well. So there's that aspect of it. But I think you know, it's so deep rooted where everything from like, this was not something unique, right? It's, it's something that lots of different people of color have to experience everything from, you know, if you're going out in certain areas, being careful, you know, teaching your kids to speak a certain way to certain professionals in the world versus like wearing certain clothing, carrying yourself in a certain way. I mean, there's so much code switching. There's so much vigilance that needs to happen that is really exhausting. And I guess the last thing that I kind of want to, you know, mention about this is like, I fear that what happens if we're not able to to continue making progress and these sort of things get worse? What happens when we see increasing divisions where COVID is something that we continue to have to think about and to address in a variety of different ways from the vaccine to to other things like how long standing are these perceptions going to be how much is this going to impact you know the ways in which we engage i mean there's just so much in terms of like what happens in the future how do we prevent against this and again it it goes back to these are things we've been talking about for decades decades and decades and decades so my very small part in this is trying to figure out ways in which we can try and empower individuals in a system that is imperfect, that has been imperfect, that continues to be imperfect and creates unintended consequences. What are things that we can continue to do and how can we really boost and amplify the work of others and people and sort of the thing that I, I will say that the probably the most vulnerable piece that, that I'll mention is that after all of this sort of happened with like the backlash that I sort of faced, there was an instance where I was like, okay, you know what? I'm just not going to ever talk about this again. And I'm not going to engage. And I will be very honest in saying like, I felt for a small moment in time where I was like, I don't feel like Black people and Asian people are on the same team. And it made me resentful. And, but then I sort of like slapped myself and said, mm-hmm. and, and said, when I look at individuals, right, when I look at individuals like Oscar or Seku or Tina or people who have reached out to me, and I'm just a couple of just names that people who or Arlen or Minda, right? Like, I mean, there's just people who, who know me and, and I think that's what we need to do. We need to remember that like, there's no such thing as a perfect person. And there's also no such thing as a perfect race. And when we start saying, here are the imperfections in this race or this gender or this, and start grouping, then we're going back to exactly what our research tells us about in-group and out-group and, and attributions and all of these things. But when we consider each other as individuals, as in individuals, regardless of the color of their skin, regardless of their, their gender, regardless of their sexual orientation, their class, their religion, their accent, how they communicate, 
then all of a sudden I felt so much gratitude for the, the black community and the Asian community, because I could think of so many individuals in the black community who I would, so many students, so many colleagues, so many people that I would no matter what I would fight for in an instant, that I would, regardless of, of any sort of divisions, that, you know, if anyone ever said anything bad about, you know, Seku, or if anyone said anything bad about Oscar, I would be there defending, like, so quickly. And so I think that's what we need to remember is this individual. Right. Thank you so much, Laura, for the great work that you do and just for your transparency, your vulnerability, your authenticity. You know, you've given our listeners just so much great advice on how they can find their edge. But I want you to know that, you know, we stand with you. We stand with the Asian American and Pacific Islander community because it's it's time to just end all of this violence all of the bias against these communities. There's, it's never appropriate in any community, but particularly, you know, we want to center Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders in this moment because of the horrific experiences that the community is having. So typically people who are doing these awful things probably aren't diversity matters listeners, but they should be. <laughs> But they should be. But, you know, all of us as a, as an entire community, we have to come together, continue to come together and doing the things that we do to organize, to share better practices and resources so that each of our communities can be stronger. So I, I want to wish you continued success and all of your future endeavors and just want you to know that I respect you so much and, and love your work. And I'm just so excited to see the rest of your career blossom. Thank you. Right back at you. I so love your work and really appreciate all that you do and for your friendship. So thank you. Thank you, Laura. Thank you for listening to Diversity Matters. If you enjoyed our show and want to hear more, please subscribe to our show, post, talk about, and reshare our show with all of your friends and family. And leave us a favorable review and rating so that it will make it easier for others to find us wherever they listen to podcasts. We cannot do this important work or keep it going without you. So we really appreciate your support. We especially like to thank our episode sponsor, Rutgers School of Business, Camden. RSBC is a leading business school in the Delaware Valley area with top-ranked undergraduate and graduate programs. For more information, please visit their website at www business.camden.ruckers.edu. If you or your company would like to sponsor a Diversity Matters episode, please visit the podcast section of our website at www.whconsultingfirm.com for more information. Diversity Matters is produced by WH Consulting, a firm that provides a wide range of management consulting and professional services to individuals and organizations. Original music produced by Sincere Morton Murray. Until next time, peace and love. Peace and love.